All right. If you haven't been with us in the last few weeks, um, we've been walking through the book of Joshua. Uh, and as you turn to Joshua, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 5 this week. Um, let's do a quick recap of where we are in the book of Joshua and the biblical timeline. So Moses has led the Israelite people out of Egypt from where they were enslaved for 400 years. And the Lord leads them through the wilderness and brings them to the land that he had promised them all the way back when he gave the promise to Abraham. However, if you remember, Moses sent spies into the land, and when they came back, they said, there's giants in the land, and Israel was crippled with fear, and they didn't go in as God had commanded them. And because of this, God told them that they would never enter the land and would perish in the wilderness. So now Joshua is the leader that God has raised up to replace Moses. That previous generation has died, and now a new generation has been raised up, and they are ready to follow the Lord. And if you remember last week in Joshua 3 and 4, we saw that God had performed the miracle of allowing them to cross the Jordan. Just like God had parted the Red Sea for Moses, he had parted the Jordan for Joshua. And the Israelites this time were obedient all to all that God had commanded, unlike that previous generation, and now they are in the promised land in the plains of Jericho. So that's where we're at in Joshua chapter 5. All right, so let's go ahead and read the text. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted And there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haaraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all of the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born along the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished. Because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, the Lord swore to them that they would not, he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he had raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were, not, they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their place in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month and the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. So have you ever heard... Uh, or read about a story, uh, something that was just awe-inspiring or just amazing, but later on down the road, you actually got to experience it for yourself. So for me, that was buffalo. I'm from South Georgia, and so we don't have buffalo down there. But when we first got to South Dakota 
uh, and we were headed to Wind Cave National Park. We came over this hilltop, and there was just the plains opened up, and it was just rolling hills, and all I could see was buffalo. And, and honestly, I, I don't know what I thought. I, th- I think I thought that only buffalo lived in Yellowstone. But, so I, I saw this, and I was just amazed. And uh, you know, I'd read about it, and Lewis and Clark, my dad, had talked about the days of old and what it would have been like if we could have been pioneers and seen buffalo as far as the eye could see. But for me, this was happening in South Dakota that one time, crossing that, coming over that hilltop. And honestly, it kind of, it brought a little emotion to me. It was, it was like, I didn't think I'd ever see this, and I might have had a little tear in my eye. Uh, and for my wife, she said that was when we were coming out to Libby and we saw the Mission Mountains range for the first time. It just opens up, and there's the mountains. And uh, she said that, that brought an emotion to her. Uh, but in this situation, th- th- those two that I just told you about, those are kind of a, a pleasurable experience. But let's go back to the the text this morning and think about what it's like for the people of Jericho um, as they see this mighty act of God with their own eyes. So back in chapter 2, if you remember, when uh, the spies went into Jericho, they met with, they went into Rahab's house, and she tells them uh, that the, the, all of the country is melting away in fear because of what they've heard. They've heard about God parting the Red Sea. They've heard about how God uh, defeated the Amorite kings and they completely annihilated these places. Uh, but now they are witnessing God part the Jordan River right in their midst so that just beyond their city in the plains, they can see the river is there and now it has been parted and the entire, most of the entire nation of Israel crosses over on dry land. Can you imagine what it's like to think that before this this line of defense for them was the river. Uh, but now, it was, if you remember, it was at flood stage. So there was no, in their mind, there was no way that they would strategically cross this river at this point. So they felt like they had this safety, but now God has parted it. And as they watched the dried up land, um, and they had heard of this stuff before, but now they're seeing it. So it says there was no longer had any spirit in them. And so for us, this is just a reminder of God's power uh, and that we should rest assured in Romans 8.31 when he says, if God is for us, no one can be against us. And we see that right here with how he uses uh, this miracle in front of uh, the folks in Jericho. So now the Israelites, they have been a part of this miracle. They're on the other side of it. They're the ones feeling pretty victorious at this moment. And they're ready to fulfill God's command to take over the city and to destroy everything as he's commanded. They're ready to obey God and go into battle, but God has something more important for them to do first. So if you remember in verse 2, it says, At this time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel. So I want to point out uh, just something in this phrase, because if, if you're like me, the first time you read it, it says, Circumcise a second time. And uh, well, that's not a second time. It's these folks had not been circumcised um, at all. Um, so, And to truly understand the significance of what we're talking about when we're talking about circumcision, I feel like we need to go back to Genesis chapter 17. So if you want to, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 17, and we'll see where, where this, uh, this comes up for the first time. Actually, it comes up, um, God gives Abram, a promise in chapter 12, and then in chapter 15, he gives him his covenant, and then in chapter 17, which is where we're at right now, uh, is when he gives him the covenant and the sign. So I'll read uh, chapter 17, 1 through 14. Uh, 
So when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into a nation, into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after the land of your sojourning all of the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he, who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. So I feel like um, in verse 11, we really get to see what is the purpose of this. It says, it sh- uh, God said it was to be a sign of the covenant. Remember, I said the covenant had already been given in chapter 15. Um, God is the one that made the covenant. God is, uh, if you go back, it's really uh, an interesting story. You, so normally a covenant is between two people, and uh, I'm going to go off on a rabbit trail here, but um, in this scenario, they he cuts animals in half and puts them on each side. And for a covenant to be made, both people were supposed to walk through. And as they walked through, they were in agreement on whatever the agreement was. And they said, if I don't hold up my end, so shall I be like these animals. But in, the, in chapter 15 of Genesis, you see God is the one that goes through. He actually puts Abram in a deep sleep. So it is an unconditional covenant, meaning that God is the one that's going to hold up and fulfill both sides of that covenant. That was just my rabbit trail. But Back to what I was talking about. So, if that's uh, so, I feel like right now it is important to talk about what a covenant is. So, at its most basic level, a covenant is a formal agreement between two parties. Most often, if not all the time, a covenant is a relational agreement. It's not simply a contract, uh, like about a job to be done, but a covenant is a deeply personal agreement with a relationship. So, for example, we talk about a covenantal marriage. It's, between, it's deeply relational. It's not um, just a transaction. And so then when we also need to answer this question about what was the specific covenant. Circumcision began with God's covenant with Abraham, which we just read about. And at the time that God makes the covenant with Abraham, he is actually elderly and childless. Um, God tells him that he will... Make him a, he will have as many descendants as there are stars, and to his descendants God would give this land forever. So it's important to know that God will continue to establish this covenant through the generations with Isaac, Jacob, and all of their descendants. So why was circumcision so important? It was to be a sign of God's covenant. 
Any male that was not circumcised was cut off from the people of Israel, for they were essentially saying they were not in agreement with God's covenant for the people of Israel. And we know that God is serious about this sign of his covenant. So if we look forward from the book of Genesis to the book of Exodus, God has called Moses to Egypt and to lead the Israelite people out of slavery. And once Moses accepts his calling, he sets out for Egypt. And this is where it gets a little interesting as it pertains to the covenant that God had made with Abraham and his descendants. So I'm going to look, let's go to Exodus chapter 4, verse 24. Exodus 4, verse 24. So, like I said, Moses has been, God has called him. He said, you're going to go and you're going to uh, free the people from captivity, the Israelites from captivity. And he sets out and on his way, verse 24 is where we're going to pick up. It says, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. We're talking about Moses here. Then Zipporah took a flint knife and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So God has called Moses to lead his people. But Moses has not been obedient to carrying out the sign of the covenant with his own son. And God has given Moses a very tangible illustration of the importance of obedience to God's word. So much that his wife is the one that goes ahead and does what needs to be done. But now if you look back at Joshua chapter 5, we see a departure from this very same covenant. This generation has not received the sign of the covenant. However, we see an obedience here that we did not see with that previous generation. Remember, they're geared up and ready to go, yet God says you need to do this first. And they obeyed. God will be faithful to his promise, but without our obedience, we may not get to experience the fullness of his good and perfect will for us. An entire generation missed out on the fulfillment of God's promise because of their rebellion to God. And looking back, we shake our heads at them because they had the very presence of God before them. And meeting with Moses, if anyone had any reason to obey his commands, wouldn't it have been them? They saw so many incredible miracles, but every time they turned around, they forgot. But aren't we the same? We want the benefits of God's grace, but as soon as we walk out the doors of this church, we so easily forget what he has called us to. And when I say this, I'm talking to myself too. His commands are not merely suggestions. We have been saved from sin, but we have been saved to a purpose of obedience to his word so that all may know of his grace. Now, I want to draw some parallels between the Old Covenant versus New Covenant. This is actually a really exciting portion of the story because we get the privilege of seeing the entire picture, which the Israelites did not. So before we get there, I want to clarify when I say Old Covenant, we are talking about the whole of the Old Testament. Uh, Old Testament, New Testament can really be broken down as Old Covenant, New Covenant. Um, so we're, we're talking about the established uh, covenant that has grown throughout the entire Israelite history. If we go back all the way to Genesis, we see with Adam and Eve, they were given a covenant to subdue the land, to be fruitful and to multiply, to have children, and the freedom to eat from all of the trees except one. And then God gives Noah a covenant and all of creation that there will never be another worldwide flood, and he gives them a sign, which is the rainbow. 
And then to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promise of, the full, of a full family, land specifically for God's chosen people. And the promise of God would bless them to be a blessing to all nations. We also see in the Mosaic Covenant where the law of the sacrificial, sacrificial system was put into place as a way to atone for sins, the continual sacrifice of, of animals. And then we have the Davidic Covenant where God promises that the Messiah would come through the line of David and he would have an everlasting reign. And so I just wanted to clarify what I mean when I say Old Covenant. It's the whole of God's promises throughout the Old Testament. His covenant of provision for dealing with sin in order that we might walk in a right relationship with him. And then we see, I I love Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 34. It describes the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. So if you remember, Jeremiah is actually an Old Testament prophet. So we're going back to the Old Testament and seeing about the New Testament. And this is what Jeremiah says. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them from the land, took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one of teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So like I said, we have been given the big picture. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior, and He is the fulfillment of the law, and He has ushered in the new covenant. The new covenant is a promise of a restored relationship with God for all of eternity, for all who call on His name and place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So as we draw between the parallels of Old and New Testament, if circumcision was the physical sign of God's covenant with His people, what is the physical sign of spiritual entrance into faith in Christ? which is God's new covenant. It's baptism. It's what we saw Reese do this morning. Baptism is the outward expression of what has been already been done on the inside. There was nothing special about the water this morning in the baptistry. Nothing changed about Reese that hadn't already changed in his heart prior to being here this morning, except for the fact that he made the decision to follow the Lord in obedience to baptism, which he commanded as a sign of the new covenant of God's grace in his life. So while there are parallels, there are differences between these two signs. Circumcision was to be done for every male born into a Jewish family, regardless of their devotion to God. At eight years old, you're not putting any devotion towards God. However, I do want to point out that even Moses commanded the Israelites in Deuteronomy 10.16 to circumcise their hearts and to be stiff-necked no longer It was always to be a spiritual matter as well as a physical one. But with baptism, only those spiritually devoted following Christ and giving room to the Lord of their life should respond in baptism. This is why we don't do infant baptism. They're not able to make a profession of faith because it's just an outward symbol of something that has already happened in your heart. Colossians 2 describes it, stating it in verse 11, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The people of God in the Old Testament were to be set apart. It was to be clear that they were the people of God. And as New Testament believers, we are also called to be set apart and to look different from the world around us. If we are calling ourselves Christians, but we are not living our lives any differently than non-believers around us, that's a good indication that we're not walking in our identity as Christ followers. Circumcision was to set the Israelites apart. All of the Old Covenant was to set them apart from the people around them. Just as our walk with Christ and our baptism, which is a profession of our faith to the public, is to set us apart. We're to look different. So, now here's the big rabbit trail question. Is circumcision still required today? Maybe you didn't have that question, maybe you did. But we're going to go there. So I, I do think it's important to answer this. Uh, because this topic is in the New Testament, and it's not, a, it's not a small matter. It's actually in the Greek New Testament. It's mentioned 75 times. And many of those times it's in defense against the need for the New Testament believer to be required to undergo circumcision. It was such a big debate that in Acts 15, there was a council held at Jerusalem to decide on this, on this question. And they agreed that circumcision was just that. It was a sign of the Old Covenant, which included observing all the Old Testament laws. No one other than Jesus is able to keep the law to the letter, and therefore if we fail at one part of the law, we are condemned by all of it. We know that all the law was fulfilled by Jesus. He lived a sinless and perfect life. He fulfilled all of the law. So in no way is there any act that we can perform to save us from our own sin. It has been all of the work of Christ on the cross. We can't do it all. We have all failed. So the council of Jerusalem answered this question in saying, no, there is no command from God that a New Testament Christian should or should not be circumcised. All right, so we'll get back to Joshua verse 9. It says, And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I rolled away the reproach, from e- from, uh, reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. So their reproach of bondage and sin was rolled away by their obedience to follow God. So they had to trust God by going and crossing the river. You remember Pastor Zane talking about, they didn't know. God just said, take the Ark of the Covenant and step into the river. It's at flood stage. They had to, it took faith to say, okay, God's going to do something. So their trust in God provided a way to cross the river. And this radical act of obeying God through circumcision is a physical representation of their faith in God and choosing to walk in their identity as God's people. Remember, if they were not circumcised, it was like saying, I do not uh, put my trust in you and I'm under your covenant. But when they did, they're now saying, I am identifying with you as God's people. So our time in the text today would not be complete without talking about verse 10 and 12, which is talking about Passover. So if you remember in Exodus 12, Passover is the tenth and final plague that is played out against the Egyptians. And God tells the Israelites to get a lamb, a one-year-old male lamb uh, that is 
perfect, unblemished, and to kill it and to cook it, eat it, eat it with unleavened bread, and then afterwards to take the blood from the lamb and with a hyssop branch to cover the top of their door with it because he's sending the destroyer to take out the firstborn of all the Egyptians. But if you didn't have the blood over your door, uh, you would death would come on your house. But with the blood, he would go over your house. He would pass over your house. So that's where we get the name Passover. And so they would not, death would not come into their house. Before going, so before going any further, the Israelites stopped to remember this and to celebrate what God had rescued them from because that was the tenth and final one. That is the one that freed them from slavery. Uh, Pharaoh said, enough, you can go. And so in this, and this time, their Passover feast was different. Because not only were they remembering how God had led them out of slavery in Egypt, but now they were experiencing this provision from the promised land. So 400 years in slavery, it was given to Abraham. I had a couple, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you got a couple hundred years there. So now they're actually back in the land that God had promised, and they're celebrating what God has done. It's uh, just kind of hard to imagine how amazing that had to have been for them. Then the manna stopped because he had brought them into a place that he had promised. They no longer were having to rely on the manna. They were now eating from the very land that they had been longing for. It's hard to imagine that feast. And just as Passover was established to mark their freedom from slavery, Jesus is the final Passover lamb that marks our freedom from slavery. Romans 6, 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We still find our hope in the promise that was given to Abraham. We are blessed to be a blessing, but it is only through Christ that this covenant with Abraham to make him a great nation finds its fulfillment. In Romans chapter 4, verse 20 through 25, it says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. We're talking about Abraham. His faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Just like Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, a righteousness that Abraham did not earn, it is so with all of us who respond to faith in Christ. The work that had to be completed for redemption of sins under the old covenant still had to be completed under the new covenant. But it's not us doing the work, it's Jesus. He's the one that is doing the work. Because of our sin, we were separated completely from a right relationship with God. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, and there is no amount of good deeds that can bridge the chasm that our sin has created between us and a holy God. But God has made a way. Jesus is the one that entered into our brokenness, lived a perfect and sinless life. He's the only one that fulfilled the letter of the law perfectly, and he is the Passover lamb that was crucified so that we could be forgiven of our sins. He took our penalty that we deserved upon himself, and he died on a cross in our place. 
The book of John tells us that Jesus was dying on the cross and he said, it is finished. And he breathed his last. The Greek word there is to telestai, meaning to bring an end to or to complete or to fulfill. The work has been accomplished. Jesus was buried in a tomb and was sealed and it was guarded. But three days later, he rose from the dead. His resurrection showed that he was able to defeat sin and death, therefore securing our salvation once and for all and promising a new life of purpose here on earth and an eternal life with him to come. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 through chapter 6, verse 2 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If you've never had a conversation with God about your sin and what Christ has done for you, you can right now. You can receive his forgiveness and mercy in this moment. All he asks of you is to acknowledge that you are a sinner. Confess that to him. And put your trust in the fact that he, that the work on the cross that he has performed was sufficient to forgive you of your sins. Place him in the right position as your Lord and Savior, and he promises that he will remember your sin no more. You will be a new creation, saved to walk in a new way of life. And if you have any questions, or if you need someone to pray with you, I would just encourage you to find uh, me or uh, anyone else this, after, after this service to talk with. We would love to do that. Um, I was thinking, trying to say Jerry, but my brain was not working. Jerry, he's standing right there. So today, as we transition, we actually have the privilege of celebrating the Lord's Supper together. So before his death, Jesus set aside time with his, with his disciples to establish this ordinance which he instructed to be a lasting ordinance. Just like the Israelites remembered through the Passover, we remember through the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And as a body of believers who have identified with him through baptism and are a part of his family, we take this time to align our heart with him and to remember what Christ has done and to reflect on what that means for our lives. We are a people much like the Israelites in the wilderness. We are so quick to forget how he has set us free from the sin of bondage. So as our deacons come forward to serve you and our worship team joins us again, let's just take a few minutes and to have a conversation with the Lord. Wherever you're at, just remember and, and rest in the finished work of Christ. He is the one that has made the way that we can be made right with God. He's covered our sins. All he asks of us is to put our faith in him. And so just... Talk with God right now as we uh, prepare to serve you in the Lord's Supper.